My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. And we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man with 20 years of service in naval special warfare as both an enlisted and an officer. He worked as a sniper, assaulter, and platoon commander in countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, and the Philippines. Upon exit and retirement from the military, Jack again conquered another childhood goal, that of becoming a writer. If you did not know, Jack grew up with a mother who was a librarian and helped instill a love of books in Jack. He read everything from the classics to pulp fiction, which truly shows in his terminal list series of books that feature the almost bigger than life James Reese and his tales of revenge, redemption, and all-out war on those who wish to harm James or his family. He's here tonight to talk about the latest edition, In the Blood, his Terminal List TV show premiering in July, and everything on the horizon. So here we go with the number one New York Times best-selling author, Navy SEAL sniper, and outdoorsman, the one, the only, Jack Carr. What's going on? Oh, man, that is the best introduction that I've ever had. It fires me up. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you're here, man. And there's so much to talk about. Just since we talked last time, there's so much that's finished up. There's so much that's getting ready to start. But let's kind of go over briefly in case no one has heard or was living under a rock and knows who you are. We talked about you being a Navy SEAL for 20 years, and it really shows in your writing. Some of your characters are from that background, but I want to go a little further even back than that. We talked about your mom being a librarian, and we talked about that before on the first show, but I, I really want to instill that in people, just the kind of stuff that you covered, because it really, I think more than any other book you've written, your love of reading and books and the classics and everything like that really came out in this book. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, that foundation of reading is really where it all started. I mean, not just for writing these thrillers, but uh, for studying warfare, insurgencies, terrorism, counterinsurgencies. Uh, I was studying all that stuff as soon as I knew that uh, that I could. And uh, from a very early age, I was in that library with my mom studying those things. And then once I exhausted every book I could find on warfare back in the early 80s, uh, then I went on to read those thrillers that my parents were reading. So about age 10, 11, 12, that's when I'm reading those types of things like the Tom Clancy's Hunt for October came out when I was in fifth grade. Uh, Nelson DeMille, AJ Quinnell, JC Pollock, Mark Olden, David Morrell, who created Rambo uh, with First Blood back in 1972. We're in the, the 50th anniversary year of its publication, by the way. Uh, Louis L'Amour. Stephen Hunter. I mean, I'm reading all these guys back then, and a lot of their protagonists had backgrounds that I wanted to have in real life. So they had Marine snipers, and they had Navy SEALs, and they had Army Special Forces, and they had CIA paramilitary guys, typically with Vietnam experience back then. And uh, so as I was reading those books, it was just, I was captivated, and it was magic. And I knew that after my time serving my country in the military, that I would write those same kind of thrillers. So that's what I did. 
Well, you know, you talk about Louis L'Amour, and it's funny. I took kind of a page from your book, and I'm actually reading my first Western right now, and I'm reading a Louis L'Amour, and it's really fantastic. Now, growing up, my grandfather read every Louis L'Amour. I mean, he had the entire collection, and I was never really into reading Westerns, and then I picked this one up and thought, let me just try it out. Uh, I think it's called Guns of the Timberland. And uh, it's just got so much, you would think with such a small book and so many of them that came out that they wouldn't have such a rich story in each one of them. Yeah, no, he was a master, that is for sure. And then uh, there's others, uh, three that come to mind. Uh, there's more than three, but uh, that aren't Westerns. And uh, Last of the Breed, one of my favorites, helped inspire uh, Savage Sun, which is my third novel. Um, really inspires everything, but specifically Savage Sun. Uh, what a great book. Oh, my gosh. Haunted Mesa, uh, Night Over the Solomons. So there are books that he wrote that were not um, uh, were not Westerns, but obviously primarily a Western writer and an incredible, incredible background, uh, incredible life story. And then he left us with this this legacy and, and these books that, uh, you know, will, will outlive all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I would think when with as many deployments as you went on with as much time away as an adult, you probably read even more than when you were a kid, just in your downtime and stuff, because, you know, there's not other things to do other than the mission and then what you're doing. So was that true of your time overseas? Well, I read a lot when I was a kid, that's for sure. So uh, I don't know about comparatively, but I've always been a reader my whole life. I don't can't even remember a time when I didn't have a book going. Uh, there's, uh, I can't even, I'm just trying to rack my brain and I can't even think of a time. But uh, but downrange, of course, when guys would take a break, some people would watch movies, some people would play video games. Uh, when I did have any sort of a break, I would read. But typically I was reading a lot of the nonfiction. Um, I'd read some, some fiction to escape, but uh, a lot of nonfiction, just to continuing to study that warfare, continuing to study the enemy um, and uh, the area in which we were we were going and deploying just to make myself a better operator, a better leader. Uh, but all that stuff, uh, not just all the books I read when I was a kid, but all that study of warfare and then the practical application in Iraq and Afghanistan, all that stuff came together as I was getting out of the military and, and helped in this next chapter in life as I write these thrillers. Well, in, in those books that you read, what do you think helped you the most? Do you know books right off the top of your head that really helped you out the most over there in studying that lifestyle, that culture, just that area of the world? Do you remember ones that stuck out to you? Oh, yeah, I remember. <laughs> there's, a, there's a ton of them. But there's the uh, the classics on counterinsurgency, uh, War of the Flea, counterinsurgency, all those classics from really the 50s and 60s and early 70s. Um, but uh, specific to this time and time and place, uh, the Great Game by Peter Hopkirk was one uh, specific to Afghanistan. Uh, takes you back in history, but you can take those lessons and apply them to the current day. You can apply them to our past 20 years. Uh, I wish more people would have read the Great Game before we got into uh, well. Uh, 2001 time frame. I wish we had spent a little more time in those pages. I wish we'd studied the Soviet experience. I wish we'd studied the three British incursions. I wish we'd studied Alexander the Great and, and Genghis Khan. But uh, uh, so that was the one specific to to Afghanistan and the accidental guerrilla by David Kilcullen. Um, I mean, all of his stuff is is incredible. Um, but there's a, a host of, of books on on warfare, on leadership, on uh, the specific areas in which we were fighting that I thought it was my duty to, to read and study. But uh, but when we're talking about 
books that I've gifted, if the books that come to mind, and we're talking about something that uh, I think would be beneficial, not just to someone going to Iraq or Afghanistan, um, and not just somebody going to the military, but also someone going to the military, is Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer. That's probably the most influential book that I, I read as a combat leader. And it was written in 1968. And it was really a, it's historical fiction, but it's really a case study in leadership. And it follows two guys from before World War One up to Vietnam. And one's a staff officer, and one's a enlisted guy who gets a battlefield commission, and it follows them through their time in uniform. But it's, uh, there are lessons in there that, uh, that, that cross, cross industry, shall we say. And uh, really, the, the lesson of that book is to see your character and your reputation will take care of itself. So um, character is the bedrock of all we do. Well, and, and when you talk about that, when you said you wish we would have before, you know, 01 studied some more of those things, I, I think you mean in general, the military, the government, people in general studying those kind of things. A, a complaint from a lot of people would say that when you, you mentioned Alexander the Great and all of these different things that happened in the Middle East, that it's always been that way. It will always be that way. So coming from you, being a student of books, being a student of the military and of warfare, what do you think we can learn from those books that I don't know if I would say would change the direction of what happened, but could help push it along in a better direction than how everything has ended? Yeah. So our strategic level leaders, those are the ones who are responsible for those big geopolitical decision. So at the tactical level, that's what we're doing. We're going into somebody's house. We're kicking in the door. We're grabbing them out of bed in the middle of the night. We're getting them back, interrogating them, going out again, taking out an IED cell or, or whatever it might be. Um, and if we mess up out there and if we mess up bad enough, then we're going to get kicked off that team. We're going to get sent home. We're going to get court-martialed perhaps. If you take that same kind of a mistake and then put it up in the geopolitical sphere uh, with our senior level generals and political leaders, uh, they fail upward each and every time. There's only one person who was ever fired or removed from his job really over the past 20 years. And all he did was kind of question, and it wasn't even that bad. Uh, I think it was 2009, there's a great book called The Afghanistan Papers that juxtaposes uh, what these guys were saying to Congress and then what they were saying privately in conversations that were recorded that they thought they were gonna remain classified. And they're 180 out from one another. So they're lying to Congress, they're lying to the American people, they're lying to their troops. Um, and they made huge mistakes and uh, were never held accountable. So what does that say? tell the next generation of senior level flag officers? Well, it tells them that they better just get in line because the one person that got fired is the one person that spoke up and said, hey, Afghanistan's not really going as well as we thought it would. Uh, maybe we should rethink what we're doing here. And he is removed. Out he goes. Everybody else, you can play their tapes in front of them in front of Congress. You can remove the name, you can remove the date, and it's pretty much the same thing for 20 years. I need more troops, I need more resources, um, I need more money. Uh, they are Afghan troops are meeting their goals. We're almost there, that sort of showing great strides. Like these same, these little phrases are the same. Catchphrases. Of these guys. Um, but uh, focusing on December of 2001, you have tactical level guys in the mountains of Torboro. You have about 100 special operators and CIA paramilitary officers, along with some uh, some warlords that uh, we paid to be on our side. And they requested more troops and gave, we had more troops and they were that request was denied. So our senior level leaders took the wrong lessons from the Soviet experience. Uh, they didn't want to flood the mountains with Rangers, with the 10th Mountain, with Marines uh, and block off bin Laden's chance of escape uh, they wanted to, and lock him down in those mountains when they could have. And 
yeah, did we learn from those experiences? I don't know. We have, well, obviously not because we had 20 years then to prepare for an exit from this place that we messed up very early on. And what do we do? What is our best, what is our 20 years of lessons? Well, we get what we got last August. Uh, and what do we get once again? What happens there? We give up Bagram. We go to a tactically disadvantageous position, put our young sons and daughters at, in harm's way. 13 of them come home in body bags. Others come home missing arms and legs, unable to walk again. Others dealing with traumatic brain injury, uh, post-traumatic stress of the battlefield. And what are those people who are in charge? What happened to them? Hmm, they failed upward yet again. And when they retire, they'll go sit on boards of different companies that have uh, touch points with the defense industry. So once again, time and time again, but that's what they owe that soldier, sailor, airman, and marine that's standing guard at that started gate duty at that, uh, at that uh, base or wherever they are in that tactical level position. They owe them that their best that they can possibly give in that strategic realm. And that means going to the page of the history of, of the history books. That means pulling out those lessons that they can take out from any that anything that's going to help the, them make the better decisions for America's sons and daughters. And they have not done that time and time again. And it's just uh, it's certainly disheartening. That's for sure. Well, we talk a lot on this show about the mental toll that it takes, not only on the soldier himself or the sailor himself, uh, or, but the toll that it takes on the family, when you talk about that's what they owe these people, don't you think with things that, that they're telling these families, uh, about what happened and why this happened, don't you think that that leads to even more mental distress with these soldiers? Because not only are they worrying about what they're dealing with, but they're worrying about what their family's dealing with, because unlike guys that are serving girls that are serving the families are kind of left out in the cold a little bit. Yeah. And there's a support network and it becomes your normal when you're in that kind of a, a situation. So it's, uh, you know, going down range becomes normal for your peer group and the families. But, uh, when someone comes back and they're dealing with say being on vampire hours overseas, I mean, you're up all night, you're trying to grab a little sleep during the day. Uh, maybe you have a little traumatic brain injury, uh, undiagnosed or maybe diagnosed, uh, the, the, the emotional trauma of the battlefield, add some ambient to that, add some alcohol to that, add some marital problems to that. And you have this caustic cocktail. Um, and then you add some physical injuries to that. You add some uh, missing an arm, missing a leg, being in a wheelchair, uh, whatever it might be, all those things come together and affect not just that service member, not just that service member's spouse, but those kids. And then that means it's multi-generational because you've affected these kids and then you're affecting their kids as well. So it's not just that service member, it's that entire circle and the next generation as well. So we've asked a lot of these people and the least that we can do from the senior level leadership perspective is uh, stop making these horrible geopolitical decisions, strategic decisions. And once you make them, be held accountable. George Marshall in World War II, we all know him from the Marshall Plan after the war, but really what he did in the lead up to World War II and during World War II was fire people who did not measure up. Uh, and somehow after World War II, we lost that for some reason and, uh, and people started failing upward. But all those names that we know of, all those generals and admirals in World War II that we have all, we've all read in the history books or seen in the, in the movies, uh, they were in those positions because multiple people before them could not handle it and they were fired by George Marshall. Um, and then, yep, I don't know why, but after we changed the, uh, the Department of War to the Department of Defense and started moving into Korea and then Vietnam and then the years after that, um, that accountability um, is absent.
Well, don't you think that that comes from, it's not necessarily a military standpoint, it's a political standpoint. These are not military jobs anymore when you're talking about up at the highest levels. I even look at it from a law enforcement perspective. When you talk about a chief of a large metropolitan department, that's not a police officer. That's a politician. He's just a politician for the police department. I think you would agree that when we get up into those positions, even more now than ever, those are political positions now. They have nothing to do with troops on the ground. That's right. They're, they are uh, politicians in uniform, and I use that, use that line in, uh, in my first novel, but uh, it's, uh, there's a lot of truth to it. That is for sure. I mean, there's, uh, you've got to be able to find some that aren't, but uh, those would be the outliers, and uh, politicians in uniform are what they, what they become. And, and I feel like the, the lower have even sometimes they're just happy with scraps that they're thrown. Um, I see it when they when they hear uh, we'll use a department that I had uh, worked for. We had a, a chief come in and they said, what do you want? And people said, well, we'd like to grow facial hair. And and people went crazy because they could grow facial hair. And I thought that's what you ask for when it comes down to it. And and it seems to me that people are so happy just to get scraps or be noticed that sometimes we miss the big picture in it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's uh, the the further you get from being a let's say a, a beat cop, uh, the further you get from being a tactical level operator or soldier, um, and then you start looking at that next rank, and then you see the person in front of you, what that person did to continue to climb that ladder. And I don't know what you what you tell yourself, but maybe you tell yourself you need to be an insider if you want to make change. And in order to get to that level to make those changes, you have to do X, Y, or Z. I mean, I'm not sure I was always going to get out of the military before that ever became an issue. Um, so, uh, but it's it's certainly certainly noticeable. And just the farther you get from the guys and from the people that are doing the job, the more disconnected you are, and uh, the more connected you are to that next layer up, which are uh, the politicians. Well, so let me ask you kind of to wrap up your military. You did both. You did the enlisted side and the officer side. And and you said you didn't stick around for too long, but you moved up pretty well in the ranks. Um, you were in charge of troops. What's the difference to you and which felt better by the end? Oh, I don't know. It was a natural progression for me to go from uh, an enlisted SEAL uh, and then an enlisted SEAL sniper and then go to OCS and come right back to the SEAL teams and then be an O1 and be a sniper team leader and assault team leader and just keep going to troop com- or platoon commander and then troop commander and task unit commander. Like all that was was very natural. It was all tactically focused. Um, didn't have to really do a staff job um, and, uh, and that sort of a thing. So it, uh, it just felt very natural. But uh, I mean, the best time in the military is as part of one of the E5 mafia. You know, that's that's the great place to be, uh, you know, on the couch in the platoon space waiting for the word. And I never forgot what it was like to be that guy sitting on the couch in the platoon space in the team room waiting for that word to come down. Um, and you can tell uh, when you're when that person just comes in and regurgitates what someone above him has told him to tell you, you can tell. Um, and so that's why I was always going to be honest with uh, with my guys, um, because that's what I owe them. Um, they I owe them my honest assessment uh and if you do that if you're honest with them uh even if you are you have to give them some word you know that they're they're not going to like um you can't just regurgitate it you have to be honest with them and you have to be honest with them about how you uh feel about it how you look at it how you're going to circumvent it maybe um how you're going to deal with it um you got to frame it in the right way and that's the art of leadership right there but uh, you certainly just can't regurgitate something from on high and 
point to your 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 caller device or or whatever and expect people to follow you. That's uh, that certainly is not leadership. Um, I don't know what that is, but uh, but I never forgot what it was like to be that E five, and I've never I never aspired to be an admiral or anything like that. I always knew tactical level leadership was was my path, and uh, when I got to a certain point where I couldn't tactically maneuver guys on the battlefield anymore, it'd be time to get out and uh, and follow my next passion, which is writing thrillers. Well, let's talk about those books. Uh, you have become, you know, uh, with with so many thrillers out there, with so many military thrillers out there, it's very few and far between where they pick that yours have become so popular that it picked up its own series. Uh, I talked to Don Bentley a couple weeks ago, and, and we talked about this, and we said that for every one guy that gets his books picked up, there's a hundred other guys that are doing the same thing that that don't get it. So what was it that you think about this series? Because I know what it is to me, but what is it about this series that made people grab a hold of it so much? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things. Um, let's let's pick two. Uh, one of those is that um, I take the emotions and the feelings behind things that really happen to me downrange and weave them into the storyline. So when my protagonist is ambushed in, let's say, Los Angeles, California, um, I don't have to talk to somebody or I have to just imagine what it might be like to be ambushed or what I saw in a movie or what I read in another book, or maybe I talked to somebody and interviewed someone and uh, from Vietnam or from Iraq or Afghanistan, and then they, they take what they tell me and it goes through the filter of my bias and my preconceived notions and other things people I've interviewed or other movies I've seen or books I've read. Um, there's none of that. It is direct from what it was like to get ambushed in Baghdad in 2006 at the height of the war. And I just take those feelings and emotions and I apply them to a fictional narrative with my character in Los Angeles, California, or anywhere else in the world that I happen to be writing about that situation. Same thing with being a sniper. I don't have to go track down a sniper from Vietnam or a sniper from Ramadi. I can remember what it was like to be a sniper in Ramadi in 2005 and 2006. And then I can just take that feeling and then I can apply it to the fictional narrative that I'm writing about snipers. So. Uh, um, so there's no there's no filter there. Um, so they're very personal and it reads like it's very personal because it is. Um, so I think that's one. And then uh, the other one is that, that James Reese, this character, is on a journey. It's not just the same person with the same skill set, just dropped in a different situation in each book. Uh, he's learning. He's on this journey. He's adapting. He's evolving. He's asking questions. Hopefully he's taking lessons learned and applying them going forward as wisdom. He's doing the things that we're all doing in life as we move along. So uh, that's happening in each book and it's happening over the series and across the series as a whole. So I think those two things really made the uh, the books stand out to people, uh, to Simon & Schuster, to readers, um, and luckily to, to Chris Pratt as well. Well, do you think that, because I've heard you say before, going into this, you knew who you wanted to publish, who you wanted to edit, who you wanted to kind of be your team backing you up. Do you think that helped you go into this, that a lot of people are going, and we talked about it, just happy to get someone to back them up? Do you think with that focus on you that it let you kind of laser in on the things that you needed to do? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's all that all that reading. I just wake up one day and decide to be an author. Say, I'm going to give this a shot or say, I'm gonna, this looks pretty cool. I'm going to what should I have been reading for the last 30 years uh, that would have prepared me for this? Uh, I'll go read them right now. Uh, that's not how it was. It was a lifetime of reading, a lifetime of building a foundation slowly um, and reading about warfare and terrorism and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies and then doing it downrange and then um, making that transition and taking a breath uh, and also identifying exactly what you said there. Like, who would I want? 
want to publish this novel? Oh, Emily Bessler, Emily Bessler Books, in front of Simon & Schuster Atria. Uh, why? Because Vince Flynn uh, thanked her in the back of all his novels, and so does Brad Thor. Uh, well, that tells me something. Okay, bam, that's going to be Emily Bessler. Uh, same thing as I'm typing away, who would play my character? Who would be a good actor to portray James Reese? Oh, Chris Pratt. And uh, at the time, he hadn't risen to A-list prominence. He was just Andy Dwyer in Parks and Rec and played a zero in zero, uh, seal in Zero Dark Thirty. So I got to see that physical transformation. And then I got to see, hey, this is a likable guy on and off screen. And then look what he did to transform from Parks and Rec to Zero Dark Thirty. This is my guy. Chris Pratt will play uh, Navy SEAL James Reese when this is... Uh, and this is before I was even... in. Absolutely. Uh, I didn't even know I had a connection to any of this. And then I thought Antoine will, Fuqua will direct. Um, I loved uh, all the things that he's done. Training Day, Tears of the Sun, Magnificent Seven, Seven Equalizer, Shooter. Um, and so I just, that was the team. And that is now the team, which is crazy. Um, but I got very lucky and uh, somebody cracked the, both those doors to me, to Hollywood and to publishing. But if someone does that, they have to be willing to risk political capital on you. And that means you have to be prepared. So if someone extends that hand or cracks that door, you have to be prepared to kick it in all the way. And uh, luck is the residue of preparation is what an old commanding officer of mine used to say. So you have to be prepared. Um, and in both those cases, I was. Well, let me ask you then, when you say that and you say you have to be prepared to kick the door in, what are you doing to sell yourself? How do you do that? Because I think that's the, the question for the ages. A lot of people go, I just, I don't know why some people get it. Some people don't. What is it that Jack Carr is doing to sell himself to these people to get what he has set out to do? I never thought of it in those terms before. Um, just being honest, being prepared, being honest. Um, I think that's it. Uh, and if you're honest and you're not prepared, then you're probably not going to go very far. So I know that you have to put in the work. So all those books I read growing up, all these thrillers that I read, uh, studying um, uh, the hero with a thousand faces and this this mythology around the hero's journey, uh, applying that to everything that I read or everything that I watched, noting the adaptations to screen from books that I liked, uh, knowing that I was going to do that later in life, uh, studying warfare going into the SEAL teams, preparing myself in every way possible to get through BUDS, to be the best operator I possibly could, to be the best leader I possibly could in the SEAL teams. Uh, and then writing the best book I possibly could so that when someone cracked that door for me, I could hand that to the person, in this case, Emily Bessler. Uh, and that was that that was my best, that she got my best right there. And if that doesn't do it, then, hey, you've given it all you can give. Um, and you can be happy with that. Um, but you have to prepare. And I know that if you don't prepare, uh, and you don't build that foundation, well, guess what? When I know it's not going to happen for you, but, and it might not happen, even if you put in all this work still might not happen. That's, that's just called whole life. Um, but I know it won't if you don't put in that, that work. So you have to put in the work, think of yourself as a professional. So as soon as I got out of the military, I flipped that switch and I used to be a professional operator. So it's called the profession of arms, not the career of arms. And then I became a professional writer in my head, even though i Still hadn't sent a book to Simon and Schuster, uh, and I thought of myself: I am now an author. I'm now a writer. I'm a professional. I sit down. That is what I do. Um, so I never wavered in any of that, and I prepared myself and just did the best I could along the way, and was just honest when that door was was kicked in for me. And uh, luckily, they liked the product. And then same thing with uh, Chris Pratt in Hollywood. So it's uh, it was the same in in uh, for both uh, for both venues. Well, when you say that, it it also makes me think like. Did you ever dream in, in 
your military service, you knew you wanted to be a book writer, but does it ever seem strange to you that all these guys that are getting out that were special operators or veterans, uh, not just special operators, but veterans are now uh, in the movie industry, in the book writing industry, in the coffee business, in the whiskey business. I mean, horse soldier bourbon is doing great. There's all oh, these yeah. different things and all these guys that I've talked to on the show that, you know, they did this one job. And then, like you said, flip that switch when they got out. It's kind of a two part question. One, did you ever imagine that the world would open up like this with all of those things? And number two, when you see all the possibilities that are out there, this is what boggles my mind. You still get people that leave law enforcement, military, and they just don't have a purpose. They can't figure out what that purpose is going to be anymore in life. So can we answer that kind of in two parts? I didn't mean to give you such a long question, but one, did you ever imagine it would be like this? And two, what makes the difference in going, I can do this and I, there's nothing else I can do. I did this for so long. I don't know anything else. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a, a, a couple of things there. It's being able to identify your passion in life uh, as you're leaving, transitioning from anything. It can be law enforcement, it can be military, but it can be the death of a loved one, it can be a divorce, it can be changing jobs, you know, any job. Um, doesn't doesn't matter. It's any sort of a, a transition in life. Um, but it's identifying what's important to you. So uh, what is your passion? And then what is your mission? So for me, that mission is taking care of my family. My passion is writing. So what does it make sense to do? Combine those going forward. Uh, so that is my purpose, to be the best author I can possibly be, to provide something of value to those who trust me with their time, time they're never going to get back. So that is something I take very seriously, no matter what I am doing, whether it's a social media post or a podcast or any sentence in, in any of the novels. Um, they're trusting me with that time. So it's really identifying those things so you can find that purpose moving forward. And when I talk about building a foundation, what I saw some people in the military do is get stuck in it. Uh, by that, I mean, you've built this foundation and you've learned lessons on successes and on failures. Uh, but when it came time to go, you were in that foundation, your feet were stuck in the cement and you couldn't move forward for whatever reason, instead of continuing to build on that foundation, just like you would a house or a building, um, you're building upon that foundation. It has to be strong. So before you go up to that next stage, you have to build that base, that base foundation, and then everything that goes on, on it as strong as it can possibly be built. So yeah, it's all about identifying that purpose and that mission and putting those together as your purpose or that passion and your mission and putting them together as your purpose going forward. So I think that is uh, is a vital importance. And did I ever think this would happen? I, absolutely. That's uh, I thought I would be a SEAL and I thought I would serve my country in uniform. And then when I got out, I thought I would be a number one best-selling New York Times bestselling author and an A-list actor would option my, my, uh, my book and it would be a series or a movie um I, I thought that the whole time my whole life the power of positive thinking okay here's what i want to do jack or, or naivete you know <laughs> well you know i i think it would be positive thinking but what i want to do for people that may not have known i want to go through the books i i want to do a brief overview of each book so they know what it's building to because i want people to be who maybe haven't read these books as excited about them as i am and a as your other readers are. So can we go down the list kind of, let's start with the terminal list. Uh, and, and I've always told you there's a special spot in my heart with this one. I, I absolutely love this, but I don't, I, and I can't put my finger on it when people ask me why I, I can't put my finger on it, but this book, let's start with it. Let's give a brief overview and just kind of talk about the storyline and the introduction of our characters. 
Yeah, well, up until this last one, up until in the blood, I think the terminalist was probably the hardest hitting, and that was the uh, that was the intent out of the gate because I knew that there are thousands of these books that cross the desks at Simon and Schuster or any publishing house um, every single year, and something has to break this one out. So when I started, I wrote down about five, six, seven, eight different ideas, like one page executive summaries on each, and the one I wanted to, wanted to start with actually was Savage Sun. But I knew that the characters weren't developed enough to explore the theme of Savage Sun, which is really the dark side of man through the dynamic of Hunter and Hunted. Uh, but I know I couldn't start with that one. I needed to build up the characters. I needed readers to get to know the characters. I needed to develop them to a point where I could explore those themes in the plot of Savage Sun. So uh, it was very clear to me that uh, the terminal list was the one to start with. It wasn't even a question. Um, had that one page executive summary, had the uh, the title right off the bat and uh, started turning that one page executive summary into an outline and then the book. And that's the what I've done for each of the novels uh, thus far. But uh, I also wrote on a yellow sticky a theme. I wrote revenge and I put that yellow sticky on my computer right here next to the, the trackpad. And, uh, and I saw so anything that I wrote, whether it was directly or indirectly, more importantly, had to go back to that theme of revenge to keep me on track and to keep things moving forward. It had to have that drive. Um, so really revenge without constraint is the uh, is the theme of that book. And I wanted my character going into battle thinking he was already dead, just like a samurai, because uh, they thought that made them more effective and efficient warriors. So I had to figure out how to put a modern day warrior into that mindset. And that's the conspiracy and the drugs and uh, tested on our nation's most elite soldiers. And that's how that came to be, which I got from the church hearings in the in the mid seventies of uh, drugs that were tested on uh, inmates, on uh, mental institution uh, patients, on um, uh, university students and members of the military. So, uh, so, I, so that's where that, that all came from. And then that second one, I needed to continue the journey. I thought it would be disingenuous to the reader to just take James Reese and drop him into a, uh, a new situation and just off I go. Uh, because after the traumatic events of the first novel, he needed to learn to live again. He needed to go on this journey. So I took a real risk in True Believer. And I th actually thought that, the, that my editor was going to take the whole first part out, the whole journey, the whole learning to live again. I thought that she might just take that out. But to my surprise, uh, pleasant surprise, she left it in. She took that risk with me. And uh, and True Believer is to people who who really love who who love True Believer, they really love True Believer. Uh, and some people don't because it's a little slower build up. I'm taking this character on this journey. He has to learn to live. He has to find that purpose we just talked about. He has to find that mission, that passion. Um, and so he's going on a transition just like everybody is in in life that transitions from one job to the next or leaves the military or or anything like that. All those all those things we just talked about. So that's really. Uh, uh, true believer and, and true believer also has an interesting piece to it in that I have a Russian invasion of Ukraine as a driving force or the threat of a Russian invasion of Ukraine as the driving force. So this is now becoming an issue as I write the outline for season two of the terminal lifts for Chris Pratt and the Amazon series um, because that's happened. So now I can't use it the same way I did in the book. So now I have to get creative and figure out kind of a new uh, geopolitical type of a scenario that will still drive the plot forward is at, in as compelling a way. Um, so so we'll see. So I'm working that out right now. Uh, and then I Savage Sun. The China yeah. situation might be the good because they have talked a lot about encroaching on some other areas of the yeah. world. Yeah, it's tough because I already have Russian characters. Right. I have the whole whole second book is built around a uh, a, a Russian uh, such a Spetsnaz soldier who's killed <laughs> in 
Vietnam uh, by Reese's father and this whole, you know, multi-generational thing that ties to Russia. So uh, anyway, I got to like, I'll I'll be I'll be thinking about that in the weeks and months ahead. That's for sure. But uh, yeah, Savage Son. That's a, that was, that's a lot of people's favorite. The third the one. classics. But you go back to the classics in Savage Son. You reach back to the most dangerous game. That's right. That's right. So in sixth grade, I read The Most Dangerous Game, and I knew that one day I would write a uh, thriller that paid tribute to that short story. So Savage Son was that book. So it's uh, it's uh, The Most Dangerous Game. It's uh, uh, Last of the Breed, which I mentioned earlier. It's uh, it's First Blood. Uh, these things are all uh, uh, extremely influential on me as an author and as a human. Uh, and I, so I, those were, were all books that really influenced the pages of Savage Son. So I just loved loved doing that. And then the next one is something that I thought about for a long, long time uh, in the military. And now that I'm out is what the uh, what the enemy has learned by watching us on the field of battle for the last at the time, 19, 20 years at war when I wrote that. And as I started to write that, um, the devil's hand, then COVID happens and a summer of civil unrest, a very contentious political season, an election cycle. And I thought, well, if I'm in the enemy's shoes for this book, they're certainly learning something from our response to COVID. They're certainly learning something from our summer of civil unrest. They're certainly learning something about the divisive nature of our politics and the electorate right now. Um, so they're not just looking at that casually. They are taking lessons and applying them to future battle plans. So that's what I did in uh, in The Devil's Hand. And that ended up being uh, the longest, the most research intensive of all the novels because it has a, uh, a bioweapon piece to it. And that bio, I had no touch points in the military with uh, bioweapons or bioweapon research. So I, uh, I had to go deep down that rabbit hole. And, uh, and then for this one, In the Blood, deep down the rabbit hole on artificial intelligence and quantum computing. Wow. And, Data storage and uh, surveillance of U.S. citizens and and all that and uh, so I went deep down that rabbit hole and it was scarier than the bioweapons research I did for the previous novel. Let me ask you: I want to do two of these: The Devil's Hand and In the Blood. First off, The Devil's Hand. Out of one hundred, how close to reality is that? I know you did a ton of research and stuff, and and of course there's Hollywood and everything, but. How much are we talking? Because there's some scary, scary stuff in the devil's hand. I would say, based on my research, that uh, that is 100% accurate. Wow. And so when you're doing a study... I shouldn't sound so sure. Maybe people were lying to me in my interviews. Let's say 99. Okay. Well, but but even that. You, you look at it, and, and you're doing this research, and you're writing about this. You You have to think, I mean there's some crazy stuff that goes on in this book. I mean, very crazy stuff, not just with James, but with the government, with things that are being tried to be hidden labs that are hidden, all these kind of things. When you think about all that, how much does it make you worry about the future? Well, I was worried about the future before. Um, I'm worried about it more now after these books. I don't know if, uh, if I can say I'm worried about it more. I was quite uh, quite concerned earlier uh, before I started writing the last two books. Um, but uh, yeah, my wife and I try to remain hopeful. But you know, my wife and I sit down on the couch at the end of the day and grab a glass of wine and kind of recap what's been going on and how the kids are and you know, it's a where, where we're going as a country or community or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, it's tough to remain so hopeful you know you really don't want to take a vacation to a to a city right now um it's just 
I don't know. It's tough, tough time. I mean, it's just a, yeah, it's a crazy time. And it's just, I don't know what the fix is. There's no, there's no new world to take off to, you know, you can't get in a, get in a boat and go across the Atlantic and end up in the colonies. Um, you're already here. Um, and, uh, we're doing a pretty good job of destroying ourselves from the inside out. That's one of the, one of the things that I, I found from researching, um, uh, the devil's hand, the last book, I was like, wow, man, if I'm the enemy, I'm might just sit back and watch uh, because we're doing a pretty good job of destroying ourselves right now. Um, and so as a, as an author, I had to quickly figure out a way around that uh, because if that's my conclusion, I need to, <laughs> it's gonna be a very boring novel. I'm gonna have to move this thing forward. <laughs> so, I to, uh, so I had to do some things that would necessitate the enemy taking action. And so I, I liked the way that I figured out how to do that, but, uh, but that, that was, that was a fun challenge, but um but yeah, I mean, it's so disheartening to see, uh, and I think it really stems again back to a, a lack of appreciation for what we have here and what was given to us and what was sacrificed for us. Um, and when we talk about books and getting into the pages of those history books and reading about uh, the Revolutionary War and reading about all the things that were sacrificed from the inception of this country up until today so we could have the freedoms and the options and opportunities that we do, it's, uh, I mean, if you don't have an appreciation for that, if you haven't studied that, if you don't have a touch point with that, that somehow, and you just all of a sudden think that we have these freedoms, um, just because without thinking about the why and without going into, um, how much was risked, even for those who didn't die along the way, uh, but how much they risked so that we could have these freedoms. And then we are voluntarily, we have active, we have segments of society and segment segments of our, uh, elected officials, uh, that are actively undermining those freedoms, uh, and destroying what was given to us. And it's our responsibility to pass those on to the next generation. And I would say we are not doing the greatest of jobs. And, and I would agree with you. And, and talking about those cities and the riots that happened from a firsthand experience, it was crazy. It was like, I don't want to compare it to a third world country where there's destruction everywhere, but that's pretty much what it was. And what I noticed is if for an election, you have to board up an entire metropolitan downtown because you think that the buildings will be destroyed, buildings that have been around forever, somewhere we've taken a wrong turn. Somewhere yeah. we've skipped off what we should be doing. And so the question to you would be in doing all this research and seeing these things, when you see that, where do you believe that the problem has started to come from? Because like you said, the enemy is watching from the outside, us destroy ourselves from the inside. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, it started a, a long time ago, took root uh, after after World War II. Coincidentally, at the same time, we started hold, uh, not holding those uh, senior level leaders accountable um, and, and slowly has invaded the, our entire culture. Um, there are very slim sections that, uh, you know, half half of our politicians, let's say. Um, but there are very few spaces that aren't completely overrun uh, with an agenda that uh, runs contradictory to really the foundational freedoms that this country was was built upon. Um, and why is that? I don't know, but there's definitely a difference between a, a, a classical liberal and a, a leftist. And those terms have been uh, uh, conflated over time to mean the same thing, and they are, they are not. Um, and uh, yeah, when you took it, the, the country's most powerful export used to be Hollywood. 
used to be our movies uh, in the late 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Um, and then things started to started to shift in there, uh, still, still even in the 80s even. Um, but they used to send a message to the rest of the world. And those movies were so powerful that they made almost every single person on the face of the earth dream of coming to the United States. Uh, and they dreamt of coming to the United States because of that opportunity, because of that freedom. And now that same institution, uh, and I say Hollywood as a, as, a, as a whole, obviously, it's not every single person there, um, but that same institution that used to instill that, uh, that, that freedom and that opportunity and celebrate it to the rest of the world is now actively undermining it. Um, uh, we have, we have the vanguard that, that used to guard, uh, that first amendment. Um, we, we have lawyers, we have publishing houses, we have, uh, authors, we have newspapers, we have magazines, um, actively calling for censorship when regardless of what you thought of the second amendment or other maybe contentious issues out there, we used to all rally around that first amendment. And we used to say, Hey, I will die for your right to say what you want to say, especially if you disagree with me. Like that's what we were as Americans. That's the one thing that bonded us together. And now that's being actively undermined and the same people that used to guard it, um, with a fervor are now calling actively calling for censorship. Um, so there's a, there's a moral vanity that has invaded, uh, many of the spaces from let's say Hollywood to, uh, to wall street, to sports, academia, obviously, um, that, uh, that's hard to combat. Well, and when you mention that, there's a couple things. One, when you look back, when you're talking about Hollywood being so powerful, I mean, one of the most uh, best-known presidents, Ronald Reagan, came from Hollywood, brought it over. But when you talk about the 80s and you talk about Wall Street and, and movies that were made back then, like Wall Street, like uh, The Secret of My Success, all these different things, and, and you know, it brought people here. The thing that I would agree with you at, but I would put a little spin on that is I believe that everyone used to rally around, like you said, the First Amendment, freedom of speech, and I'll die to protect that. I believe that people still believe in freedom of speech, but there's a caveat to it now. I believe that they believe in freedom of speech until you encroach on something that they don't want to hear you say. <laughs> and then well, they would die to protect that frame of mind. Freedom of speech as long as, uh, as, long as you agree with me. I guess that's maybe absolutely. And, and, and I think that's what it is because having a debate and letting the best ideas rise to the top, um, in the marketplace of ideas, which used to, um, once again, used to form the bedrock of our societies that we could have a discussion and that we would, we'd know that because of that discussion, because of that debate, the best ideas would rise to the top and therefore make us stronger as a country, as a culture, as a people. Um, and now if we'd have a, we don't have this debate, you know, we do, we want to silence that other side and, uh, and, and, and censor it. So there's definitely been a shift and it's happened, uh, fairly quickly over the last two decades over the last decade over the last three or four years i was know, just about to say i would say a, a huge wave of it is in the last five years yeah i mean COVID threw some uh uh some gasoline on that fire for sure as did a bunch of other events um an election cycle and a lot of things came to a head that really uh spurred this forward so i don't know the uh 
I don't know the I don't have the I don't have the answers. So I'm, I'm certainly thinking about uh, these issues quite a bit, but uh, but I don't have the answers. And then when you see, especially when you look at what's going on, and you can you can anybody with common sense, you don't need to study you know geopolitics. You don't need to have a, a college degree, a master's degree, a doctorate. You can just pile, apply a little common sense and say, ah. Oh, Maybe if we want to be a strong country again, maybe it makes sense to do a few things like what? Oh, like um, maybe uh, uh, seal that southern border. OK, that's one. OK, maybe being energy independent and not being dependent on our actual enemies who want to destroy us um, for our energy that runs our national security apparatus. Okay, Maybe that's that's the second one. Um, maybe uh, not being so dependent on another enemy on China, especially for things like our like the chips that also uh, run our national security apparatus and maybe some of our pharmaceuticals or at least some of the uh, precursors that you need for our pharmaceuticals. Um, but to be dependent on your enemies for these things, um, that, that's, uh, yeah, that's a recipe for disaster. And it just doesn't seem all that bright. And if you applied a little common sense to it, um, maybe perhaps you would uh, quit undermining all the things that made this country great. Well, when you talk about China and you say even the pharmaceuticals, there's a huge problem with China uh, importing fentanyl into uh, countries where it's not supposed to be. So you're looking at things that have blown up way bigger than I think anyone ever thought they would be. We, we look so much at China. I remember saying, wow, their army's so big. They have so much money. But we weren't looking at these other little things, these cyber warfare things that were happening, the pharmaceuticals that were slipping in, all of these different things. And I think when we focused on a big thing, all of these little things made their own towers to collapse onto us. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's you can get distracted uh, by by certain things, and now you can be manipulated a lot uh, a lot quicker and a lot more powerfully than uh, you ever have been in the past because we're carrying around that manipulation tool with us all the time in our pocket, um, and not just our behaviors, but our thoughts can now be controlled based on all that information that the tech giants have on us, and that's not conspiratorial. That's just the truth. Um, so that's a it used to have to be. Let's say if you wanted to change, let's say the behavior of of a citizen or community, whatever it might be. Well, you'd have to blackmail a journalist, pay a journalist, blackmail a politician, pay a politician. Um, and now there are so many more ways to exert that influence in a much more powerful way, obviously over a group, much greater number of people. So uh, to have so much uh, wealth and power and information, um, not just the wealth, but the information is really with the, uh, uh, is really, really it. Uh, at those highest levels with such a small number of people. I don't know where it goes. I'm not sure, but it's going to give me a lot of uh, a lot of information to work with in these novels. That's for sure. Well, let me ask you: with Elon Musk purchasing Twitter, the the big meeting is getting ready to happen where they're they're going to talk about the buyout. And and actually, I know it's been agreed upon, but there's going to be some other stuff that's discussed with something like that. We had two different camps, and it was very odd to me that we had two different camps after this came out. They said, oh, he's liberating the Internet. Oh, he's he's making free speech come back and really make it free speech because he's going to let Trump come back on Twitter and all these things. But then you had the other side that said, he's just another gajillionaire that owns something that will control the way we receive information. And it just leads to another problem. And it was weird to see that, that we were so divided down the middle that people thought, oh, it's freedom. Oh, it's just going to lead to worse things later on. 
Well, we hope it's going to lead to more free speech uh, and less shadow banning and all these other things that are that are out there that we all all know uh, uh, target one side, <laughs> certainly more than the other. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see how it turns out. But, you know, billionaires owning media companies is nothing is nothing new. It's just that this one happened to scare the other side. And you don't really know if he's conservative or liberal or independent or what it is. You know what he is? He's a richest man in the world and he can do what he wants. <laughs> that gives you a lot of freedom. Um, and uh, but to have the rest of that group um, be so afraid of maybe uh, some of these shadow banning and some of these other things that are out there lifted, um, yeah, it should tell us uh, you know, a lot of what we need to know. Well, it sounds like a character that you could definitely put into a book later on. Uh, let's talk about In the Blood. Um, and I, I want to get an overview if you'll give an overview of the book first. And then there's some parts I don't want to be spoilery at all, but there's some stuff that I want to talk about in it that you bring up in it and some different groups and just kind of get your thoughts on it. So if you would, please give an overview of In the Blood. Yes, my goal with any at the end of any chapter is I want that person that's reading it to want to turn that page and read the next chapter and stay up all night till they're done with the book. And then when they're done with the book, I want there to be enough resolution where they feel like they got their money's worth, but uh, also have a little bit something that makes them want to get that next one and look forward to next year. So that's really the the art of it. And in the past couple novels, I've had uh, uh, some loose ends that James Reese, my protagonist, needs to needs to uh, to tie up. And uh, this is the book for for at least one of those. So that was really the uh, kind of the driving purpose behind this book. And it's a sniper centric novel of violent resolutions. That's how I thought of it as I as I wrote. So the uh, the challenge became as a sniper myself and writing a sniper centric novel. I wanted to not fall in to let's say the trope of uh, two snipers on opposite hillsides or on buildings uh, across the street from each other and they're looking for each other and they're hidden and they're searching and they're searching. They find each other at the last second and then they fire at the same time and one bullet goes through the scope of one other guy's rifle right into his head and kills him. Um, so I wanted to stay away from that. Uh, and figure out how do you write a sniper? And I love that as much as the next guy. I love that in movies. I love that in books, <laughs> but I feel like it's been done. Uh, oh, so it I has. Had to think <laughs> I figured I'd figure out a way to write a uh, sniper centric novel without that penultimate scene. And, uh, and I, I love that challenge. And I, I really enjoyed coming up with uh, the way that I, that I dealt with that. So, um, so yeah, it's a, uh, it's James Reese is on this journey and, uh, he's, he's going to tie up some loose ends here and, uh, he's going to learn a few things along the way. So just like, just like we all do on our journeys. Now you say sniper-centric novel, but let's really talk about the technology because I thought that was a huge part of this. I threw away my phone after I was done, and <laughs> yeah. I, I think uh, I'm just going to use burner phones from now on. So can we talk about that a little bit? I don't want to be spoilerish, but as you describe the technology in here, one, it was fascinating in the book to read about it that, that this is – I would guess, like you said about the last book, a 100% real thing, but just where it's going to. And I had never heard of these quantum computers and all that kind of stuff. So can we talk about that a little bit? What's that? You look up a photo of one? I, I have, I'm telling you, when I saw it and I, I heard about it, it, it all got pictured in my head. So I'm going to have Wait. to look up one. 
Yeah. So I describe it. I think I call it like a, a, a golden Medusa type of a, a thing is how I describe it suspended in a vacuum. And it's uh, you look up quantum computing or quantum computer and hit images when you when you look it up and you'll see what they what they look like. But um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I never looked up what one I heard of a quantum computer, but I just thought it was a really fast computer, maybe bigger than my laptop. Um, I had no idea what it actually looked like and what it could actually do comparatively to these other computers that we have out there. So uh, so that was fascinating fascinating going down that rabbit hole. I learned a ton. It was scarier than what I researched for the devil's hand. Um, and the people that I interviewed who had touch points with that world all said they're going to leave something out and uh, that if they told me more that my book would end up in the science fiction category. So when you talk to enough people and if you read books on this, it's they're already dated. So I did read books on this, but I kept in mind that, hey, this information is already dated because things are moving so fast in the technological realm. So uh, so talking to people that were more current and then having the foundation of those other books that I read as research uh, really allowed me to paint this picture of what's out there. And it's uh, yeah, it's certainly scary. And I don't know where I don't know where it goes from here. With the biohazard, I understand from the last book, those things. How did you come across this idea, though? Like what made this be the one that you said, yes, this is going to be the focal point in here? That is a very good question. Um, you know, you, you don't want to just do a book uh, like the last one. I didn't want to fall in to, okay, here comes the bioweapon book. All right, here comes the, this one. Um, uh, I wanted to stay away from that. Just why I wanted to make this sniper book a little different than all the other sniper ones out there. Uh, same thing with the last one. It couldn't just be someone smuggled a bioweapon across the southern border and they're headed towards DC. Uh, that's been done so many times. Um, so I have to do it a little bit differently. I have to bring my experience to it. I have to reach out to my contacts in the security world and start asking questions. And oftentimes I don't know exactly where it's going to go when I start ask these, asking these questions because I have no foundation and touch points with bioweapons in the last book and, and, uh, and quantum computing in this book. So I learn as I'm doing that research and it sparks something that's, that allows me to say, ah, I see this I've never read this before in a thriller. I don't know how many people even know about this sort of a thing, uh, or if someone does know what it is, like bioweapon. Um, well, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to take a different, I'm going to use a different take here, a uh, different tact, and I'm going to use it in a different way to propel the story forward. So I'm always trying to move the genre forward, even if it's just by a degree. And I'm always trying to get better as an author, just like I was always trying to get better as an operator, or as a leader in the SEAL teams. Um, so oftentimes it's just a, a little bit of a spark. And then I start going down the rabbit hole on the research. And then it starts to develop in my mind. And then I start to figure out how it's going to propel the plot forward. And then I figure out how I'm going to do it differently than I've seen it done before. Uh, and it all all comes together. But uh, it's a, I love every part of that process. Did you mean for it to be a character in the book? Uh, I don't know when that took place. I don't want to give any spoilers, but I'm not sure if that was from the book. It was certainly early on because it happens early on in the book. But um I don't know how much of that. I have to go back to the outline because I do as I write that one page executive summary. I turn that into the outline. But if the outline's not over, over, overly robust or if I come to a section where I'm like, I don't quite have that figured out yet, I don't get hung up on the outline. I just go around it, over it, through it. I continue writing uh, that outline out knowing that I have a year to figure this out, uh, knowing that as part of the research, as, as I write, as I continue to develop these characters, as I introduce new characters and get to know them, that I'll work out these problems. I'll aggressively solve these problems. Um, and, uh, and so I'm not worried about that. It's not something that stalls me out. So I can't remember exactly 
where the character that you're talking about uh, became an actual character. Um, but I think it was fairly early on, probably after the one page executive summary, but somewhere in the outline. And obviously when I got to that part or started to figure out uh, how to work that into the actual novel, um, obviously, but, uh, but I think probably in the outline stage is where uh, I'd have to go back and look though. I, I loved it. And one other character that I love that you added on, uh, I, I, I guess I call him the book collector. I don't want to give too much away, but the book, I, I, I did not think I would like that character going into it just because of, I guess, history or whatever. But I, by the end of it, I, I, I can't wait to see him again. Nice. I love that. I love that. I've been waiting for that. So I've had a, that character in mind for quite some time and I didn't know how or where exactly he was going to appear. Um, but when I started writing this, um, I had the intent of trying to bring him in and it was just became natural. Uh, this was the story to do it. So, uh, it was, it was super, uh, super fun for me to, to create him and then, uh, put him into the story. Yeah. I, I cannot wait to see more of him just, just in the stuff that you did. Um, talking about this, I want, I want to talk about the current state of the world a little bit with this book, because like you said, you, you had done about a Russian invading the Ukraine, but there's some stuff in this one that's still kind of sticking out. And I've noticed that uh, a lot of people have started talking about it more and more. Uh, there's a couple countries to talk about and then groups that go with them. Israel, of course, Mossad is brought up in this, um, not really Shin Bet, Mossad mostly, uh, focused in this. Why do you think that that now, after 20 years of the war on terror and stuff, that people are really starting to set up and notice Mossad, the Shin Bet, all of these different other intelligence agencies? Of course, people in the government, military knew about these, but I think the world knows about these agencies now. Mm. Well, I don't know. I've been so in tune with uh, all of them from the earliest of ages, like anything I could read on any intelligence service growing up, um, uh, whether it was a fictionalized version in the pages of a thriller or if it was something in an encyclopedia or a chapter in a book or did, didn't matter what it was. I was always fascinated by it. So it's always been a part of my life. I've always I've been very uh, in tune with uh, not just uh, Israeli intelligence, but ours uh, and other other intelligence services around the world, because that was once again, that was my passion. That was just what I did. I thought it was going to make me a better operator in the SEAL teams. And um, now it, I can weave that stuff into the storylines of, of my novels. Um, so I never, I didn't really take note that, hey, they're more in the limelight now uh, or, or less. That really never came across my radar. Um, obviously very uh, aware of Operation Wrath of God um, from Munich. Uh, and, you know, there's a movie called Munich. Um, so there's there's been a lot written about them. There's been a lot and they've been woven into popular culture quite a bit over the years. But maybe you had to be paying attention if you were if you were really going to be aware of what because they were genre specific uh, in many cases. Uh, Munich, you know, broke across a few different genres there. So might have uh, alerted a few more people who weren't necessarily uh, aware uh, of what the intelligence Israeli intelligence service was, but it, so it's such a fascinating history when we talk about Israel in particular, um, really from the inception of that country uh, all the way through today. Um, I just love reading about it. Um, I love what I, we can learn from it in this country, and I really wanted to get over there to research because for that first novel, I had already been to Iraq and Afghanistan. For the uh, the second one, I went to Mozambique, but boots on the ground to to research over there. I'd already been to Morocco. I'd already already been to Ukraine. Uh, the third book, I'd been to. Every 
everywhere except I hadn't really been, uh, well, I hadn't been to um, uh, Kamchatka Peninsula just south of Siberia. So I went there. Uh, the last book, The Devil's Hand, I, luckily I'd been to most of the places that I write about in that book, not all of them, but most of them, um, because COVID locked down everything while I was writing that that book. So I had to had to just write that uh, really from, from my office. Um, and this one, I really wanted to get to Israel because that's such an important chapter uh, or, or series of chapters in the book, such an important part. Uh, I had every intention of going and COVID restrictions kept changing. You had to be an Israeli citizen and then not. And then you go to make plans and it would shut down again. And it was just impossible to get over there. Uh, it was not happening. So um, I, I cannot wait to go. But what I did do, obviously, was deep dive. And then I sent the book to, and those chapters specifically, uh, to friends in Israel. So I had three generations uh, read it in Israel. And it was so cool that they got back to me and said, we cannot believe that you have not put boots on the ground here, that you've not been here. Because uh, reading this, it feels like you've been here. And that, uh, that made my day, of course, because uh, one, I wanted to go and two, it's such an important part of the novel. Is it hard to write characters in and, and speaking about Israel, there's characters that are introduced into it uh, and to to either move them to another part of the story or not, not write them out of the story. Is that hard to do? Because do you find that people want more? Because I found I wanted more of some of these characters and um, I don't want to say I got cheated, but I feel like I, I, I wanted more of them really bad uh, Two in specific. Uh, is it hard to do that? Because I, I feel like when you wrote those characters, there was a lot to put out there. Yeah, you know, I think it's just like life um, where you, you meet somebody and you want to spend more time with them. But for whatever reason, you can't or your paths diverge, um, whatever, whatever happens. Um, so I think it's just like like life. And I love building these characters up. And oftentimes to me, I want to get back to them as well. But it just doesn't make sense for the story because that uh, just like all of us, that character James Reese, he's going somewhere. He's on this journey. He's on a mission. Um, and uh, there's are people that he meets along the way in many cases um, that help him maybe uh, deter him maybe or try to <laughs> in a lot of cases. Uh, and then sometimes you create an amazing character and you're like, oh, man, I got to kill this person off. And you're like, ah, oh, geez, and I can't bring him back. You know, maybe it's a memory. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it is something that I, that I wrestle with. Uh, but it's also fun because I know, hey, in the future, I can continue to create uh, amazing characters, people I want to meet, people that I despise so I can get the reader to despise them too. And usually when that happens, that James Reese is going to give them the tomahawk treatment or something at some point. Um, so for me, it's just uh, I, I love doing all of that. But I know what you're, what you're saying, and I feel it as an author as well. Man, I, I really, as, as reading it, when I, when I got to that section, I was like, oh, there is definitely something that's going to spin off from this. And and I will tell you, more in this book than I think any of your other ones, you kept me guessing. Everything that I thought was going to happen almost took a different turn completely. Nice. That, that actually became something... Uh closer to the end, uh, more so to instances at the end, but even along the way, um, there's a certain thing in Israel that I had outlined uh, a different way. And uh, then I got to it. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes I, the outline, it looks good. And then I'm like, okay, Roger that. And knowing that things are going to, I don't stay rigidly um, tied to that outline if something doesn't feel right or doesn't feel natural or something develops earlier on. And then I get to a stage in the outline that now it doesn't make sense. Um, so I, you have to remain uh, quite flexible and adaptable. But, uh, but yeah, there was, there was something written in there in that second part that was going to, it was going to be different. And then I got to it. 
and that's just the way it came out uh, naturally. So, uh, but I know what you're talking about, <laughs> man. I, yeah, I thought it was going to be completely different. Okay, the next country, <laughs> Afghanistan. You don't. It's weird because you don't write a lot about Afghanistan in this book, but when you do talk about it, it seems almost an all-encompassing storyline into this storyline. Does does that make any sense? How I'm saying it? I wrote that today, actually, in a. Uh, or did I erase it? I can't remember if I wrote it and then deleted it or if I uh, I kept it in. And I can't even remember. But I was talking about exactly that because I wrote a, um, a blog for the books. And they're sitting right here, actually, just off screen that I used to research this novel. So I'm going to put those up on my blog at officialjackr.com. And I have uh, the, the books right there. And you can click and, and you can go check them out. But uh, as the little intro to those books, and I can't remember if I... I think I did leave it in. So it's going to go up tomorrow or the next day. But I talk about exactly that. I say something about uh, cyber uh, cybersecurity and quantum computing and artificial intelligence and uh, surveillance of U.S. citizens, mass data storage. And then I say, well, then why are these books here? Why are there all these books here on Israel and on the Soviet experience in Afghanistan? Find out May 17th, you know, uh, something like that. And then I have all the books that I use for research. But because Afghanistan was such a seminal moment in the history of one of the characters, um, it, it it and and for me, um, I got to put that into the storyline because I had to develop that character, and I couldn't just it's, you know it's kind of disingenuous to me to just say oh this guy was in Afghanistan with the Soviets or whatever you know whatever it is. I have to build it. I have to make it make it feel real. And I go back and I research and I say when would this guy have to be born if I wanted him to do X, Y, and Z? And I have to create a whole background that makes sense and gives him the skill set and the mindset and the personality that I need him to have to drive that plot and story forward. So for me. I absolutely love to do that, um, and uh, and I think that's why it came off as so powerful because it's powerful to that character, and he's an important character in the novel. Um, and he's not uh, not someone who is uh, you'd say, oh, that's a that's a one off. You know, that a lot of Soviet, uh, a lot of Russians went through Afghanistan between 1979 and 1989, uh, and a lot of them came home in body bags, and a lot of them came home missing arms and legs, and a lot of them uh, came home with traumatic brain injury, even though they didn't call it that back then. Uh, a lot of them came home dealing with that uh, the stress of the battlefield, and it influenced generations, like we talked about. So it's um, uh, so that was important to me. That's why it came off so powerful, and I'm excited that you that you would mention it. That uh, that really makes me happy, actually. I mean, for such a, you know. Uh, <laughs> a, a, a dark part of history there, but uh, that you would mention it as part of the story is standing out to you. That's uh, that makes me happy. Well, and, and I'll tell you why, because when you say that, I know that when you do these interviews and stuff, people always ask you, are you James Reese? Are you this? Are you that? It's all of that. that you always ask. Questions. I love it. I love it. That part of the story though, felt personal. It felt more than just about the Russian that you're talking about. It felt like that was being spoken through the Russian, but an American point of view. Yeah, it, uh, it was personal to write. That's for sure. And it's, you know, I had to put but, myself in the shoes of somebody that experienced that. And then maybe was a little bit disenfranchised. Um, and do you think you were, I don't mean to interrupt you, but do you think you might've been a little angry in writing that? <laughs> uh, it's It's quite probable. Um, I, I really felt that come out of it. I felt an anger of, of like you talked about failing up, but 
for so long. This has happened over and over, and we've never learned a lesson, not just in our 20 years with the Russians there, that we've never learned this lesson of what's going on. Yeah, no, exactly. So I could, I thought of, I even write about like, I think where he was when he saw the Soviets leave, I think in February of 89. Um, and I, you know, we're not even a year out of Afghanistan, August of 2021 when, uh, when we left. And so I got to look at how we left to look at our rush to failure right there. We had 20 years to prepare for that exit and that's the best that we could do. And so I got to take my feelings on our exit from Afghanistan and I got to think, Hey, would, would somebody that served in Afghanistan uh, in the Spetsnaz uh, back in the 80s and watch what happened, watch his fellow brethren, uh, uh, in, in many cases mutilated by the Mujahideen uh, to see what happened when the United States started shipping the stingers over and uh, how those really took away the Russian air, the Soviet air superiority that they had with their hind helicopters. Um, and thought, oh, okay, I might be angry. I might be angry with my politicians. I might be angry with how, how we left. I might be angry with America for bringing over those, uh, uh, those stingers and supplying the, the Mujahideen when, when Russia controlled the skies or Soviet Union controlled the skies up until that point. Um, and I just put myself in those shoes and got to take those, once again, those feelings and emotions and apply them to that character. Although all these years later, from my experience, I got to transfer those over to him. So, um, so it is, it was powerful. Felt yeah, powerful I, to run. I, I thought it was a great part of the book. Okay. Last country. Let's talk about Russia because Russia has not been just an influence in this book. It's been in a couple of them. I mean, we've done travels across Siberia. There's something about the Russians. The cold war, uh, is very reminiscent of the eighties in your writing. Yeah. Uh, very, very Wolverines, red Dawnish. Um, and it's that I think that what makes it stand out so much to me, because a lot of people write about Russians and that kind of stuff. Yours is more cloak and dagger with the dagger stabbing into someone. It, it, it's very this is behind the scenes, but you're not only showing behind the scenes like they did in the 80s. You're showing the execution of that plan. Oh yeah, yeah. So um, you know, not not very Jean Le Carré ish uh, when it comes to the the violence and it, when it comes to to tradecraft. I like to uh, really make these as visceral as I possibly can, and sometimes that means you know not writing about something, leaving it to the reader's imagination. Uh, sometimes it means describing it in great detail. Uh, it all depends on the scene, on the flow, on what I'm trying to impart on the on the reader uh, as we move forward through the story. Um, but I love, I mean, the Russian stuff obviously uh, is important to the storyline because I have multi-generational storylines going, even if it's just a touch point, even if it's maybe like an Easter egg here or there, or if it's something I'm putting in to maybe explore down the line, um, or for the characters to discover going forward and, uh, and then um, use in a future novel or storyline. So um, so that's established already from an early novel uh, because that generation that I'm talking about, that was the Cold War and it was the US and it was the uh, Soviet Union. And we had these other areas where we had these proxy wars and hence Cold War. Um, and, uh, and I weave those into the storyline. So uh, Russia has become uh, a, a major force, I guess, even though it's uh, there are different touch points throughout history, different ages, different characters, uh, but it's still very prominent. But growing up in the 80s, I think that's only natural. And having one of the characters uh, that is uh, not primary, 
but he's a primary mover in James Reese's father, having served in Vietnam and then having gone to the CIA and having the Cold War been really his uh, his war after Vietnam. And then in the early stages of the, the war on terror post September 11th, before uh, he's taken out. Um, it's uh, so, yeah, Russia figures prominently and it's uh, it's very natural uh, for it to do so. Now, in this, though, you don't just talk about the Russian government, the Russian military. You bring almost every aspect of Russian culture into it, the Russian mafia, uh, the crime element that's going on, of course, with the Russian mafia, but how the Russian mafia is connected into the government. Uh, the old guard, I would say, quote unquote, the old guard of, like I said, the, the tip of that spear uh, out there. Is there a reason why... With your characters, you don't really write about the new guard. It is it is people that are present right now in the government, but it's very much that old guard mentality. Yeah, we'll take a look at uh, take a look at a gathering of Russian officials. Um, there's no up and coming politicians that are young. Like, just take a look at the crowd. They are old. They are old. They have KGB ties for the most part. Um, and those leaders got truly decide who was going to become rich at the end of the Cold War, who was going to become an oligarch and who was not. Um, and uh, but in this country, you can look at Congress. And, yeah, there's a lot of old people in Congress, but there are some young ones. There are some young ones. And uh, you don't have that really in Russia. So why is that? Um, well, <laughs> there's certainly a reason, uh, because those old people do not want to be taken out by the younger generation. Um, so for me to write about those older politicians, those older spy masters, um, that's because there aren't really any younger ones. Um, you know, when I say any, I'm not speaking, of course, there may be one, two, three here, but it's not like here. It's not like in the West where we have another generation that's coming up and that's preparing essentially the next one to move in behind it. Um, they, it's, it's different over there. And all you need to do is take a look at those stands and uh, take a look at any gap political gathering and you will uh, you will see what I mean. Well, and you even point that out in this book that even if you have not hidden secrets, but maybe hidden things that are wrong with you, that doesn't even leak out. You you are constantly worried about that. And I thought that was a fantastic part of the book because, once again, you don't write about it a lot, but you touch on it just enough to make you think, hmm, that's awful odd that he does that all the time. Yet he knows what will fix the problem, but doesn't do anything to fix the problem. He's just resigned to it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I wrote some of that into Savage Sun as well. Um, and when uh, in doing some research about, hey, what if one of these guys during the Cold War, what happened when they got surgery? Huh? What if the CIA did have a doctor there that could talk to them as they're coming out from under anesthesia and, and ask them a couple questions when they're in that foggy state right there? <laughs> uh, who'd be in the room? Uh, how would the CIA want to distract somebody that would be in that room, maybe? Um, so we could get a question in and ask something of a senior level military official or Politburo member or something along those lines. Um, so, so that's uh, yeah, that's all that's all part of it. That's all real. Let's talk real quick to finish this up kind of about the book. Let's talk about the couple of the different intelligence agencies um, that you bring up, the Russian intelligence agencies, because there were points in this book that I thought were great where people were asked, are you this, are you that? And they took offense to being asked this because they were that. So can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So 
you know, the, the KGB, the GRU. I like to go back into history uh, and the glossary. I have some, there's some semi-humorous uh, entries in the glossary uh, when I'm talking about different things. Some are actually, you know, like real definitions and other ones are just, are kind of fun for people who are going to take the time to, to go in there. Um, but there's a, a, there's an internal security service in Russia. There's an external security service in Russia. Um, back in the day with the GRU and the KGB, one got, was really known for getting its hands dirty. The other one was known more for uh, being at the cocktail parties and, and that sort of a thing. So uh, I like to continue some of the, those rivalries and bring them forward to further develop the characters and conversation and make the, those characters a little more human. Um, so it's, uh, that's, uh, that's fun for me to do. Um, and, uh, and this one in particular, I had a great time. The two characters that you're, you're talking about, there's a third who's not, doesn't physically appear. And, uh, I didn't know if he was, he was in the outline. I didn't, uh, I didn't specify. Um, I don't, you know, I didn't specify in the outline, but as I was writing, I kept thinking, huh, am I going to make it, is this person going to make an appearance? And I'm glad that he didn't because of now what happened with, with Russia and Ukraine, um, because it might, you know, who knows, but, uh, but the two senior level intelligence officers in Russia that form this triad, essentially. I mean, there's a council where there are, are more uh, government officials in there that really help run that government and that uh, run that society. But uh, but this three, this council of three, one who never shows up and two that are that are quite prominent in the storyline um, was 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 fun. It was incredibly fun. And some of it I fictionalized. some of it I because there's there's some things you just can't exactly no uh, like headquarters and, and that sort of right. thing. So you make as you can and, you know, you fictionalize it uh, a little bit to help the, the story move along. But Gorky Park and, and I've been there. It's been a long, long time. But uh, I was in been to Moscow back in the day. And so I got to think about that architecture back there. Think about how cold it was um, and uh, and weave some of those feelings from from me walking the streets there uh, well before I was in the military. Um, and uh, and it was it was fun to it's fun to do all that. I had a great time. I've had a great time writing all of these. Um, but this one this one in particular was was fun for some reason, probably because the sniper stuff, probably because of those characters that uh, you're just talking about that have ties back to the Cold War and to all those books that I loved reading growing up. And obviously the 80s were such a formative time for me. So this was uh, this was a, in particular was a was a fun novel for me to write. And uh, and there's a theme of forgiveness in here, too. You know, it's uh, and I didn't really expect that at the outset. That wasn't in the one page executive summary, but it was something that, that came up. And in Chapter three, I just released the preface, the prologue and the first three chapters um, on my website. There was the first two chapters were out there already on audio for people to listen to. But I just released today the first three chapters. Um, and that third one is probably the, my most favorite chapter I've ever written. Uh, and it's just a conversation. It's between James Reese and Susan Hastings, the, uh, the, uh, the, the matriarch of the Hastings family. And, uh, and it's just just them talking. And that one, for whatever reason, I don't know, but that one was for me probably the, maybe the best chapter I've ever written, and uh, and quite possibly the most the most I don't know impactful and powerful to write. And I'm not sure exactly why that is, but um, but I had a great time with this one. Well, I definitely think that that conversation that you're talking about led to other characters more than once in the book. Talking about it, yeah. Then I wove it. Then I wove it in. That's I what I'm having, saying. So other yeah. characters kind of brought oh. back to that conversation with her, and she's always been a great character. I was a little interested to see that the Hastings um, weren't as abundant as in some other books. They were still around, but it's such a great family to have around. Uh, oh. But but 
you know, there there wasn't. Uh, I have a feeling coming up. There's going to be a lot more Hastings coming up. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it is such a great family, and people keep asking me about writing more about them or doing a spinoff or doing you know the the, the previous generation and all that. And it's uh, it's all th- they're all things that I want to explore because you're right, it is such a fascinating family, um, and I'd love to explore them more. I just need uh, uh, yeah, I need to figure out how to get more efficient with my time so that I can, uh, can can spend more time writing and not juggling all the other things that are going on. Don't we all? So, Jack, fantastic book. You did a, an excellent job on it. I, I absolutely loved it, especially, like I said, the little parts that I don't know if they'll stick out to other people, but they really did to me in the book that I, I really loved. I loved Israel. I loved the story of Afghanistan. There were there were some parts in there that I really, really loved in the book. Uh, let's talk about your book tour. So run down real quick. Monday, May 16th, you'll be at the Poison Pen in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. The 17th, you'll be in Bastrop, Texas at the Painted Porch Bookshop. The 18th, the Ronald Reagan Library in Simi Valley, California. The 19th, the Barnes & Noble. That's a virtual uh, event. Can you explain that one a little bit real quick? I think it's between events. So I, uh, I jump online and uh, jump online with La Monica Garrett, who uh, people might know from 1883. He's just awesome. He's also in the terminal list uh, coming on July 1st here with Chris Pratt. But uh, we're going to do a little conversation for Barnes and Noble and uh, just do a virtual event, kind of like we've had to do for the last couple of years with uh, with COVID. But that's between between two events. So that'll be the, the Barnes and Noble one on this book tour. And then it's down to, to San Diego, back to the independent bookstores. Yep. Friday, May 20th, you'll be at the Tattered Cover in Denver, Colorado. The 21st, you'll be at a VIP brunch hosted by Murder by the Book. That's in Houston, Texas. Uh, you'll be up in my neck of the woods on the 22nd at Half Price Books, Writer's Block on the 23rd in Winter Park, Florida. Uh, the 25th, you will be uh, Doylestown Bookshop in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. 26th, King's English in Salt Lake City. So you're kind of wrapping it up, coming back home. Uh, that that is quite the tour. You should be very sure. very tired by the end of that. But I I'm sure people will love to be a part of it. Now a question though that a lot of people have: Will the book with the rifle rounds in it be at those tours with you? Negative. So I only did that uh, for a limited number of independent bookstores that I was not going to go to on tours. So that was a way to kind of uh, help them out because I can't. <laughs> can't really extend that tour any more than it already is. Um, so I wanted to do something to help as many independent bookstores as I possibly could. So, um, so those were ones for, uh, for bookstores that aren't on the tour. So that was pre-sale only through those tours. And I tend to do something like that early on as a campaign, uh, for, for each book. Cause, um, like you said, my mom was a librarian and have great memories of being at libraries. And every time we go to a new town, we would stop by that local bookstore and spend time there. And I just have such great memories. And in many cases, a bookstore, is just like a cornerstone of that community. So I like to try to help them out as much as I can. And if there's a way to, uh, to encourage people not to not to just hit that easy button uh, online and actually you know reach out to that bookstore, because sometimes it does take a little bit more effort. Well, guess what? I'm going to take a little more effort to do something a little special for them, like shooting through those cover pages uh, and, and signing them and getting them out there and making that a limited edition thing that, uh, that uh, won't happen again, certainly with this book, maybe a future book, but not, uh, not anymore with uh, Within the Blood. So in order to, to get people to make the extra effort to go to the independent bookstores, uh, I do a little bit something, a little, a little bit extra to, to, to help nudge them that direction. Well, let's talk about the TV show. Everyone's been excited. You've kept it classified forever when it's coming out. You've done set photos. You've teased everyone. Now we have a date. Now it's coming out. 
Let's talk about the terminal list on Amazon Prime. That's right. That's right. July 1st, 4th of July weekend. It is coming in hot and it is looking good. It is tested off the charts with test audiences. I think that might be classified, so don't, don't tell anybody. Um, and then we'll have a, uh, a teaser that's coming soon. So that's like a, a two-minute thing, I think. And then there's a uh, uh, actual trailer that comes out a little closer to when the series drops. That's a little longer than two minutes, maybe two minutes and 30 seconds or something along those lines. Um, but there's two, they both look like trailers to me. Um, but they term one a teaser and one a trailer. So those will be coming soon and uh, some more behind the scenes and then a few more other things that are dropping in, uh, in conjunction with the show. So there's a lot, uh, a lot going on, but I cannot be more thrilled with how it turned out. Well, with Terminal List Tuesday, you, you showed set photos today. People were very happy about that on Instagram. You pulled out all the stops on this, uh, like you talked about Antoine Fuqua coming in to direct. I think you brought in a couple other directors. Uh, Remy, um, I, I think you call him Adelecki is how you say his name. I'm not sure. Uh, was that pretty close? I think so. I think okay. so. That's a tough one. Yeah. I wish we'd been on set together during that time frame when he was there, but uh, he's got a lot going on. Yeah. I thought people can follow his Instagram, see what he has going on. Uh, would love to have him on the podcast here in the lead up to the show. We'll, we'll do it eventually this year, I think. But um, yeah, we had so many seals that were helping out. We had Raymond Doza on set every day. It has war office productions who has, I was in the teams with um, Jared Shaw is the only reason this thing is being made is because Jared Shaw gave the book to Chris Pratt. Um, and he's a buddy from the, uh, the seal days as well. Uh, Max Adams, army range, amazing guy writer producer i uh, was a second unit director on this show and uh so those three guys ray and jared and max on set every single day uh it would have been a different show without those guys there and being so intensely involved and so invested in it so i can't thank those guys enough for being there and then uh, antoine he was like the commanding officer he set that tone from that high level and that that attitude and drive like filtered down to everyone else and he's such an amazing guy and then chris pratt was like that tactical level leader which he actually plays in the show um but he's hitting that the tactical level leadership position and inspiring everybody along the way and it was just i had so many people on set come up to me and say hey we've been on hundreds of these movie sets nothing has felt quite like this and uh so that made me i mean that was like, yes for a first experience in hollywood you can't ask for for more than that and that was uh that, it's just too cool. So is the way it's going to break down, I, I, I think, because this is the way I've described it to people, each season will be a different book, correct? Yeah, we'll see. You know, I know Chris wants to do it, but uh, he has also has a lot of other offers out there. He has, he has some options. So uh, so we'll see what agreement uh, Amazon and Chris can come to. Um, hopefully hopefully they will, because I'm excited to, to keep working on it and figure out this Russia-Ukraine thing for a second season. Um, but, you know, hey, if, if not, this was a... This is a fantastic experience and a great run. I couldn't feel more fortunate. I would definitely like to get to the Hastings Ranch before uh, this all wraps up because I really want to see that kind of brought to life because there, there's some stuff that happens on the Hastings Ranch that I would love to see how that played out on camera. That would be awesome. Yeah, no, there's so much cool stuff we could do. And we have such a great team. And uh, now I have so many lessons learned from this last year as well. So once again, you want to evolve, you want to adapt, you want to get better every time. So now I have some, uh, now I kind of get what's going on out there in Hollywood. So I can, uh, uh, yeah, we can apply those going forward uh, as wisdom. How about that? Now let's talk about the podcast. You're a busy man. New episodes every Wednesday and Friday. Recent shows, you've had Matt Graham, Miley Chapin, 
Uh, negative reviews. Rick Prado uh, in the trenches with war correspondent Kevin Maurer. Um, and John Lucky Luckadoo. Um, you, you've been killing it, man. Yeah, no, it's been wild. I had um, uh, Bill Barr, former attorney general, uh, twice um, on the podcast this week, and that'll drop here pretty soon, I think. But he was incredible. Read his new book, uh, One Damn Thing After Another. I had a ton of questions for him. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a lot more work than I thought it was going to be, uh, as you know. Uh, and uh, But it's also great because I, when I'm talking to some of these people, there are so many subject matter experts and so many people with these different experiences. And then every so often, I'm like, huh, I got to research that or ah, that's going in the next novel. So it actually helps with the books as well. And, uh, and I, and I love doing it. Yeah. I, I, I will agree with you that it's a lot of work. I, I find though that the, I think that the biggest thing to me is reading the books. I, I think a lot of people, um, look at these books, but they don't read them and then they want to talk about them. And it's always bothered me on interviews when they don't read the books or don't actually know what they're talking about. And with you, with all of these guests and reading all these books, it, it takes up a lot of time. It's exhausting. It's a lot more work than I thought, especially, you know, cause sometimes if you're reading a book, you can, you know, put it down. Life gets in the way, come back to it. It's not stressing you out. Um, but if, uh, if life happens and uh, you have an interview tomorrow and you have to finish a 600 page book and you're only hundred pages in, uh, and you, you can't fake it. Um, well, I've read every single book thus far. And I don't know if, I'll always be able to read, read them all. Maybe, but, uh, but so far, so far I have, uh, in the future, maybe there'll be some, I'll get better at speed reading perhaps, but, uh, I've been practicing been, it. I've been watching a lot of videos on speed reading. Oh, really? Yeah. But, uh, but a lot of these books have really helped me, uh, and I wouldn't have read them had it not been for a guest coming up because there's so many things going on. I'm juggling so much. I uh, probably would have said, oh, I'll get to that later. I'll get to that eventually. That's uh, I'd really like to get to that. But right now I have to prioritize X, Y, or Z ahead of it. And when you have someone coming on your show, who's taking time out of their day to be here, well, guess what you got to do? Prioritize that book up here and get it done. And then that has led to paragraphs in books and uh, a little bit more character development in cases. And, and so it's been beneficial across the board. Yeah, I love doing it. It takes a lot of time and, and a lot of effort to sit down and get everything ready and get it going and stuff like that. But it's definitely worth it in the end. Um, let's talk about your social media and website links. Everybody can find you at officialjackcar.com. On Instagram, you're at, at jackcarusa. Twitter, at jackcarusa. Facebook, at jackcarusa. Uh, each one of those things, I will tell you, is a history lesson. You post all the time about different things that have happened in the past, books that are coming out. It's kind of a, a you know, just a grab bag of what shows up. It's not just one thing that shows up on any of these sites. If you go to your site, there's all kinds of stuff that you can buy on there. You can purchase the books. You can get backgrounds on the books. What else do you want to say about this social media and website links? Oh no, it's just something that I uh, you that I didn't really have any sort of a background in when I came to this. It was I didn't come from a company where I could say, "Oh, this is what we did at, uh, you know, uh, Apple or whatever." Um, no, I had to figure it out and just kind of look at the space. I was very cautious about it um, because in the military, I was just it could, I didn't see at the time it could only um, uh, be detrimental to my mission. Uh, now it's the opposite. That's the other part that's interesting. And in that if you have no social media background now, now that's a red flag. Whereas before, in the early days, if you had one, that was information for the enemy and and all the rest. So now it's gotten things have gotten a little more complex, which is fun to explore in the pages of, of novels now. And I'm glad.
glad I'm doing it uh, in this <laughs> from this seat rather than uh, out there on the ground. Um, but uh, but yeah, I try to provide something of value. I try never to uh, do something that uh, it will not add value to someone's life because they're trusting me with their time and they're never getting that time back. So that's uh, something I take very seriously and not just uh, with the books, but with the podcast and with my social media or my blogs or anything that I have going on. So um, so yeah, it's a it, it's a, it's a way for me to say thank you. Because uh, in 1985, 75, 95, you could not say thank you to people who bought your book unless you were set it to them at a book signing or you went to a book festival, maybe. But uh, other than that, you that was you couldn't do it. Now I can do it. When someone reaches out and tells me that they bought the book and they loved it and they gave it to a friend or they told a friend about it, um, I can say thank you on social media. So I try to use it uh, in that way. And I sincerely appreciate everyone who has uh, taken a risk on me and then told a friend or posted it on social media. And uh, and I try to repost people's things and stories and, and thank them there as well. Uh, just because without that, I wouldn't be able to do what I love doing, which is right. You did an amazing job. I don't know when you sleep, Jack. Uh, guys, I think that's going to be it for the show. Remember, social media and website links, officialjackcar.com, Instagram at jackcarusa, Twitter at jackcarusa, Facebook at jackcarusa. If you want more of me, you can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast, and you can find me on YouTube at the DTD podcast, where all these conversations are in video form. Also, don't forget to check out dtdpodcast.net, where you go there. It's audio, video. It's a page for each guest that's on. You get to see pictures from their past, pictures of the present, and you get to learn a lot more about each guest. Once again, guys, go out, get this book, pre-order it right now. You got one more week till it hits the stands. Jack Carr in the blood. Also, don't forget, go to policecoffee.com. That's our sponsor. They're an officer-owned business, and they're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Remember, they love giving back, and their coffee's some of the best you'll find, but it also helps serve an important cause, giving back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. So don't forget to go see them. Policecoffee.com. Enter code DJK10 and get 10% off your order. That's going to be it for this week, guys. Jack, thanks so much for stopping by. I love it. Every time you come in here, you did a fantastic job with the book. Guys, that's Jack. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. And don't forget, you come here because the best stories are true. See you on the next one.